data now a weapon? Is it the way forward? Is data a window into our future? Is it the new oil? Is data a geopolitical game changer? Is it a friend or foe to American democracy? How do we know? How do we know anything? Welcome to Data Reveal. Hey, Mark here. Before we get started on episode two, inclusion or bust, with David Gartenstein-Ross, just a couple quick things. We recorded this episode with 20th anniversary of 9-11 in mind before the events in Afghanistan, so we didn't cover any of that. We may in a future episode. Second, we had some audio issues, so we had to re-record some of the questions, and hopefully it comes out clear. Great job for the editing team putting that together. Two things just to keep in mind. David lands on this idea of inclusive nationalism. Pay attention. We'll build to that as we talk. I think it's something that we'll carry on as a theme in future episodes. And it reminded me of something just before I actually uh, started work. When I was at my first year college, I was at Catholic University, politics department, first day, back-to-back first classes. First class, intro to U.S. politics, the professor says, politics in the U.S. is about who gets what, when, where, and how. The next class, my intro to political philosophy professor, says politics is a profound tension. And he referred to the competing interests and the way our divided government works, the branches, checks and balances, rights, federalism, you know, federal, state, local government. All of those components work together and they balance each other when the system works right. And those two things together, obviously, who gets what and the profound tension are held together by ambition, ambitious people making moves, getting things done, balancing each other. That's how our system works. And really, at the heart of that is data. We need to know the truth. We need to know the underlying ground truth of situations, surprising situations and long-held situations. You know, we know the economy, we know lots about our history, and yet we're learning about things related to inclusion, things related to injustice in our history, things related to the hardworking men and women on the front lines throughout the world, throughout the country, first responders and all they do. That means means healthcare workers. Data about all of those things add to this profound tension, this sense that we're in it together. And inclusive nationalism, David's grand concept, really holds that together. So pay close attention. I love it. We're going to focus on it at different points. But as you listen, keep that in mind. And with that, let's jump right in. Welcome to the Data Reveal Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Fideli, joined by co-hosts Courtney Hastings and Andrew Churchill. Today we have a tough topic. Actually, not just today. We're breaking it up into two parts. We want to delve into the depth of this and give it its due. The topic is data related to domestic violent extremism. And this is not going to be exhaustive. It's a tough topic. It's a deep topic. But we do want to delve into the challenges related to this emerging sort of grassroots phenomenon. And what we saw really on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol was the culmination maybe of years of planning and activity and foment that now national security law enforcement professionals, homeland security professionals are having to grapple with. Lots of public data, lots of global data uh, relates to this, but how we prosecute it, how we 
handle the challenges related to this will be a significant challenge. And I don't think there's anybody better to help us delve into it than my friend, Dr. David Gartenstein-Ross. David, welcome. Thank you. It's great to join you. I have the pleasure of calling David a friend, but for those who do not know David, he is a scholar, an author, a practitioner, a proven entrepreneur. He's the founder and CEO of Valens Global, and he leads a project uh, for the Foundation for Defense of Democracies on Domestic Extremism. Uh, David has worked in support of multiple government agencies as an expert witness. Uh, he's held positions at U.S. Department of Homeland Security, at the Google Tech Incubator Jigsaw, and at Georgetown University. David has published multiple reports, books, expert opinions, but two we want to call to attention for FDD, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a report on white supremacist extremism and a report on militant anarchism and anti-fascist movements. So we're jumping in at the deep end, but just before we begin, a quick disclaimer. This is a click-sponsored podcast, but the opinions shared by the hosts, co-hosts, uh, and guests obviously are our own and do not reflect necessarily click. Uh, however, we do intend to convey the spirit of inclusion and leadership with data and a strong commitment to data literacy, of using data, of letting it challenge our convictions and assumptions. And so with that in mind, disclaimer aside, we're excited to delve into this topic. As we jump in, want to say hello, of course, to Courtney Hastings and Andrew Churchill and uh want to think a little bit out loud about all of our experience uh, looking back at 9-11. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary, but before we do that, Andrew. Welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, same here. And thanks, David. My pleasure. Jumping in, there's a big topic that we want to explore that has a significant relevance to how we read data, how we think about data, and that is domestic violent extremism. Sometimes they're called DVEs, domestic violent extremists, and that's actually groups who organize and use violence, terrorism, those tactics to convey a message to achieve certain effects. And it's certainly a, um, a growing challenge that David is an expert to talk about. Two things in mind as we get started. Number one, I want to think back about 20 years ago to 9-11 as a turning point in our careers. I think all of us know instinctively uh, what we felt, what we were doing, and, and we're going to jump in and want to get everyone's thoughts on that. Second topic is this problem of data literacy, how we want to see in data what we want rather than what it actually reveals, what the ground truth is that it points to. Data at best is a pointer to underlying truths or a, a way of recommending paths forward once analysis is done on a problem or, or an opportunity but data really is not rightly used. You know, it's a, a failure of data literacy if you try to bend data to your purpose, your outcome, and kind of deny the ground truth. There is a wiggle room, an area of persuasion that we all deal in. There is such a thing as sales and marketing influence, but when it comes to looking for data to confirm your bias, that I think is one of the problems of extremism. I uh, read an article recently that political sectarianism, the move to the extremes on the left and the right by voters, is a real threat to democracy and our way of life and also the functioning of government. So, of course, that's a highly relevant topic. And thinking about 9-11 gives us a chance to put that in some historical context and even a personal context 
from a generational perspective. Now, David, that's actually how we met. I think it was <laughs> the counterterrorism blog where I first found your name and reached out to you in the uh, sort of simplicity of blog post comments and sort of reaching out. We connected, and I think that's, when was that? I think counterterrorism blog started in 2004, so you and I must have met 2005. But yeah, I mean, people who you meet and connect with and who become an important part of your life in some way, that always stands out. Anyone who I have a relationship with for you know a decade and a half or two decades, that person is going to be an important part of my life. Yeah, David, thank you so much for that. And hard to believe it's been 15 years and you've been such a friend and great colleague. I do appreciate what you've said. And, and for all of us, and Andrew, I've known you for 10 years, let's reflect a bit. Where were you, each of you, on the day 9-11? And how do you think back to your subsequent career and all that happened? I know for me, uh, I had just been married barely six weeks. And as I may have mentioned, my experience of 9-11 started with a colleague walking in the door to my office. And we were in a tech startup incubator at the time. So everybody had their own offices. It was sort of the post.com boom little bit of bust had happened, but it was still a time of great excitement and enthusiasm for the internet. And I had a more venture capital growth commercial focus than national security, but that was certainly about to change. Uh, by the time my colleagues realized that that second plane had gone into the second tower, everyone was on alert. We were watching TV. And then I can't recall exactly the order of events. It might have been from TV or from my wife calling, but we thought a plane had crashed into the Capitol, possibly the White House. Well, it turned out it was the Pentagon. My wife actually heard it. The windows were open. It was, for those who remember, it was a beautiful day. She didn't know what it was. She called me, and then we all were getting phone calls on our flip phones, ran up to the top of our building, which was in Bailey's Crossroads, not more than five miles from the Pentagon, and billowing black smoke coming up. We knew from the direction that it was Washington. We didn't know exactly where, and that certainly set the stage for all that would follow. My wife, I told her, quickly, come get me, and we were able to sort of get away from the traffic and get to our in-laws and watch the rest of the day. We did drive home that night and saw uh, the caved-in portion of the Pentagon. We drove directly by it on that day, and certainly for weeks later, uh, fighter jets flying over. That smell was uh, unforgettable and uh, certainly have learned so much since then about what happened inside the Pentagon, but that was my immediate experience. Uh, over to you guys for yours. I, I actually was uh, in a conference up in Baltimore with Social Security Administration uh, at the time that it happened, and I was one of the first people to actually uh, happen to walk outside to make a phone call and saw it on the screens. But beyond the moment, which is clearly uh, something that left its mark, it was just that one of those milestone points in you know, sort of my work with the government where you just really you, it rallied uh, everyone around a purpose. I mean, it really, it was, I, I ended up having a, a fair amount of uh, in, involvement as they stood up DHS and, and it was supporting a number of the organizations that uh, pivoted to, to respond to, you know, both the immediate uh, event and then the, 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 the fear, concern over future events. So, you know, it, it really, it's been one of those things, having children that are now, you know, young adults, 
um, talking with them about it. It, it uh, really is, you know, the post that, that post nine eleven world is a, a you know a true uh, true statement. So, and not to rub anyone's nose in it, but I was actually a senior in college on nine eleven. <laughs> But it is relevant. I, I just remember working on a, a senior project for one of my communications classes. And at the time that it happened, I was in the gym working out, watching the Today Show, as I did pretty much every day. And so saw it went down. And as I progressed to Staples to get some stuff that I needed for my presentation and then onto the campus, just going through the quad and there being this man <laughs> that was talking about the Armageddon coming. But... Interestingly enough, eight months later, I was working for the Association of Public Safety Communications Officials and then spent the next eight and a half years dealing with um, the interoperability issues that caused the, the death of, of so many of our first responders. And for me, I was uh, not that much older than you, Courtney. I was in law school at the time. I went to NYU uh, for law school and I lived in a dormitory on Mercer Street, kind of like you, Mark. My wife and I had not been married that long, so happy 20th anniversary for you, in addition to the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Um, you know, my wife and I just uh, celebrated our 20th, and I could see the Twin Towers smoldering from the, the street uh, outside our dorm. I remember hearing screaming and thinking that like there were celebrities or something, right? That was my first thought. And then when I looked outside and saw just like the look of horror on, on people's faces. You know, uh, one thing we're, we're, I know we're not going to talk about in this conversation, but I have a you know backstory that intersects with this movement and some pretty intimate experiences with it. And so I remember just feeling, you know, absolutely called at the time to, to do what I'm doing now. You know, I, I was at that point in my third year of law school and in law school, you tend to have a few years planned in advance so I knew I was going to go to Washington, D.C. and do a federal clerkship on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. I had a job after that lined up with a law firm, uh, Boys, Schiller, and Flexner. And, you know, I felt that this, I, I knew that this was something that fundamentally, you know, disrupted all of those plans and was going to end up changing the course of my life and career. And that's precisely what happened. Wow. So now I have that in mind. We all have that in mind. And, and DVEs, domestic violent extremists, a similar event, perhaps a turning point event in our nation for at least the coming decades. Let's talk about that as January 6th casts a shadow now moving forward. So what I want to know, looking back, thinking of all we learned after 9-11, obviously it's easy to criticize, you know, what we did wrong, what President Bush did wrong, what the government did wrong, what the Democrats did wrong, what national security elites did, blah, blah. That's easy. That fills news cycles. But I don't know if that's the right response. What did we get right? David, what, what can we build upon? You've been an expert in this space. You've seen it up close. You've been an expert in expert testimony. You understand the radicalization process. As we look at how to build upon successes for this next form of terrorism, domestic terrorism. And we think about data, what it reveals about the ground truth threats, risks, what we can do together, where there are chances to avoid loss of life, to make progress against 
all the contributing factors to DVEs. Let's pivot from that to now. What are some of the things we got right and what can we build upon? It's a great question. As you said, it's easy to criticize. And usually when asked this question, my response is critical. Uh, so it, I, I like the inversion of it to a positive framing of, of what has gone well. Before turning to, I think, six things that have, generally speaking, gone well, I think one thing we can say has gone much better than any of us expected 20 years ago is the lack of another 9-11. If you go back to where we were and where people in government were on September the 11th, 2001, there was a high expectation that there'd be another major terrorist attack in the United States soon. Now, we've had other terrorist attacks since then uh, carried out by a variety of groups, uh, some of them quite devastating, but nothing akin to 9-11 and 3,000 deaths on U.S. soil. So that, that's a success. Now, looking at drilling down to what has gone right tactically or strategically, first of all, I know this show often focuses on use of data. That's one thing that I think has gone well. Very sophisticated uses of data are made when it comes to understanding violent Islamist organizations. And similarly, you know, given both advances in data science over the past 20 years and also the way it's been used in the violent extremist context specifically, that provided a building block to get an early handle on the DVE problem set. Secondly, it's controversial, but the preventive policing model that we've seen used in a jihadist context has been relatively effective for what it was trying to accomplish, which is breaking up networks that could carry out attacks. And we can already see that preventive policing model, including use of confidential informants or use of agents embedded within broader militant movements in the DVE context. Um, if you look at the Michigan plot, which got disrupted, it's very clear that agents within that organization you know, played a role. And as I said, it's controversial, but it also is something that has served the purpose that it was intended to serve. Third thing is there's been an emphasis, especially through DHS, on building community resilience in the wake of a terrorist attack. I think that's important. I think that's paradigmatically correct. And you know, we're a very divided society. So when there are areas which we can build consensus around, such as resilience, I think that's important. Uh, a fourth thing is that our understanding of the problem set evolved over time and became more complex. Not every answer, you know, if you look at the field's consensus or majority view, it didn't necessarily always move in the right direction over time. But I think generally speaking, the field has become better over time. And, you know, I, I think that right now, you know, comparing January 6th to 9-11, I think is in, in some ways fair, in some ways not fair. But regardless, the, the way that you used it, Mark, is correct, that both of them are turning point events. And post-January 6th, where we are in terms of scholarship and public discussion reminds me a lot of where we were at a similar time after 9-11. A lot of the discussion is a little bit crude. It's viewed through lenses that perhaps speak, say more about 
writers and commentators than they do about the thing itself. I think our understanding of domestic violent extremism at an expert level is going to evolve over time, just as our understanding of jihadism did. The fifth, and just very quickly to outline my my final two points, information sharing drastically improved post 9-11. And uh, sixth and finally, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Um, I think that, you know, people will critique the way DHS is structured. I think parts of DHS's structure are not going to stand. I think the Secret Service in particular, I don't think fits well in DHS, and I do think it will be moved at some point. But having the various functions of DHS together, I think they're a bit, I think they're more coherent than critics believe. And the DHS has done a lot of important things in terms of building relationships between federal, state, and local law enforcement. That's been important in the jihadist context and is going to be even more important in the DVE context. It's more important in part because when we look back at, at January 6th and also 2020, I think we're going to have a little bit of a different view on it in retrospect than we have right now. Right now, our view of January 6th tends to focus on the actors, on the people who stormed the Capitol. And that's not wrong. But I think when we look back at 2020 to 2021, there'll be a different story that we see. And that story is the maturation of technologically empowered mobilization. If you look at at what happened on January 6th, the big part of it was way more people showed up than was expected. Um, And you can tell this if you look at at Mayor Muriel Bowser and what she did with respect to National Guard, right? The National Guard was called up, but they were only called up. uh, I mean, when I say they were only called up, I mean in advance of January 6th. They were only called up to direct traffic. They weren't there to deal with crowds that might storm the Capitol. So you had way more people there than expected. And it was very clear once the crowd was out that if this crowd was going to storm the Capitol, they could not be stopped without a potential for a lot of things going wrong. You had three other mobilizations that preceded the stolen election mobilization. And to be very clear, these are just mobilizations. I'm not saying that there's that they're extremists. But first you had the anti-lockdown mobilization. Then you had the racial the, the racial justice mobilization. And then you had a separate anarchist anti-fascist mobilization in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle and Portland. And all of those showed the ability to turn people out in very large numbers. Part of that was technological, part of that was COVID related, that people had, you know, people had more ability to get out and mobilize. And given the lack of activity from city to city, it was easier to have a, a major disruptive effect, or, or at least you're not competing against people going to work and the like. And so I think when I say it's more important in this context, what I mean is that you can have a mobilization for one purpose, which is then taken advantage of by domestic violent extremists. Um, and you know, we saw that in the context of the various mobilizations, where there might be a protest um, where protesters are nonviolent, and then you have you've had you know some members of Proud Boys show up, or you've had militant anti-fascists or anarchists show up, or you have you know some other 
extremists show up and try to turn people towards violence, maybe, you know, attack stores, try to set fires. This is going to happen more frequently. It's, it's very clear from 2020 to 21 how you can have mobilizations within mobilizations and people who want anarchy and chaos can take advantage of other causes. That's one of the reasons it's more important in this context. And a second reason is just that domestic violent extremists, by their nature, they're domestic. Oftentimes, jihadists are over there. Not always. As we know, there have been plenty of jihadist plots hatched within the United States. But domestic violent extremists, generally speaking, are going to be here. And so the, the locus, or, or sorry, the focus of where the response is, is going to be more at the, at the local level and the state level rather than at the federal level. Whereas jihadism was not exclusively the province of federal authorities, but generally federal authorities were the first responders. I was going to mention um, something in regards to one of David's earlier comments, but I think it's relevant now because he's talking about mobilization and one of the ways that these groups are able to mobilize so broadly and quickly is because of social media. And I think that is a huge difference as well between 2001 and where we are today. The sort of positive of that is social media is a great source of data in being able to understand these groups and these movements, and even in some cases, um, predict their actions and prevent them from happening. Definitely. Wow. So much there. I know, David, as you talk about feeling a sense of calling, I can't say then, freshly married, kind of where my mind was, was not, I wasn't probably ready to hear or heed the call when that happened. I think I was not as broad-minded and ready. I will say after January 6th, I do feel a much more acute sense of personal calling, but sort of national calling. You know, 20 years later, I have a much better sense of the government space and how it works and how data is used and who the players are. And I must admit that when I read your papers, co-authored for Foundation of Defense of Democracy, David with Samuel Hodgson and Austin Blair on Behind the Black Bloc, an overview of militant anarchism and anti-fascism, and then your paper, Skinheads, Saints, and National Socialists, also with Samuel Hodgson. That's an overview of the transnational white supremacist extremist movement. Those two papers I looked at carefully. And before I ask my question, just a little context for the audience, those, those two groups, it's convenient to say extreme left, extreme right. I don't know that that's useful. But what I do find very useful is in both groups, you have sort of components of belief systems of different group affiliations and how they affinitize for one another, how they connect together, these different groups. And then, of course, the violent activities that they're involved in. On the sort of anti-fascism, militant anarchism side, you see gun attacks, Molotov cocktails, talks of revolutionary struggle, arsons, bombings, murder, much more violent in Latin America and other places than in the U.S. I think the Pacific Northwest is where people's minds will go. I know it's more than that. Smash Racism DC is one group that I looked at, stood out to me. 
all of these need a deep dive. All of these have sort of data about them, data about their claims. I'm sure not all of which are invalid, but of course their tactics and their sort of commitment to violence is what characterizes all of these groups and puts them outside of the pale of a you know traditional sort of constituency in a democratic sense. And on the more on the sort of violent extremism towards white supremacist and transnational sort of white supremacism, even the national socialist side, if you will, big fear of what they call the great replacement, non-whites replacing whites. And I know I've studied the Christchurch killing, the Facebook live stream killing from several years ago, and even the, the rabbit hole podcast, which is fantastic on that. That's a different set of sort of violent activities, more mass shootings, I know that Charlottesville demonstration captured national attention. So with all of that in mind, thinking about big trends and the indicators or the the data trails that these groups leave behind, and honestly, how those data trails may hook into our culture wars, our politics, which is obviously part of their tactics. What can we say about sort of the, the ways these groups are mobilizing in the internet age? Obviously, there's a speed, there's a scale, there's a stealthiness, but but they're also out online, if you will. David, as an expert, what do you expect to unfold over the next few years? And what can we say, if anything, to sort of predict using data where their mobilization will go? And, and when you look at white supremacist or neo-Nazi mobilizations, I think that, that we will see an increase in that. In part, both movements are related to the degree of polarization that we have societally. Uh, there continue to be militant anti-fascist and anarchist mobilizations. You can see them clearly in Portland, Oregon, for example. But I think the jury's still out on whether that movement is going to decline, lose steam, now that Donald Trump is no longer president. It clearly um, gained a lot of prominence under the Trump presidency. So it, it's not so much whether you know, those groups demobilize or, or rather it's, do they continue to attract followers, adherents, supporters at the same speed and scale as they did before? As I said, it, the answer remains to be seen. I don't think that we, that we know yet, but I think there's a, a decent chance that movement will be in decline. There's also, I mean, there's, many other things that could happen. If you look at militant anti-fascists and anarchists in the United States, they are markedly less violent than militant anarchists and anti-fascists in Latin America or Europe. There's a chance that they don't decline and in fact become more violent, similar to groups in you know, Europe and Latin America. And to, to be clear, the European groups are not as violent as white supremacists, either in Europe or in the United States. Uh, so we're not talking about it becoming the equivalent of the white supremacist movement necessarily. But, you know, I, I think that it's, it's hard to predict for that movement, but more broadly, I think we can say a, a number of things. One is mobilizations are easier than they have been for the time being, they're going, it's going to continue to be easy to mobilize people. Second, people writ large 
are more willing to drift to extremes now than they have been before. Uh, there's a variety of reasons for that. Polarization, the collapse of a mainstream media environment, so we don't really share a set of values as we used to. Our move into kind of a post-fact world, which is being driven by a lot of different factors. But if you're to put one factor front and center, I'd say you know, what Courtney mentioned, social media, and the way that our reactions tend to be almost immediate and based on scant information, often no more than a headline and a few paragraphs of information to make a judgment, we just consume information differently. There are more reasons as well. Um, I mean, I'd say, I'd say one final one is that people's identity and values are more fluid and more manipulable than they've ever been. For all those reasons, I think we will see people continue to drift to extremes. Violence, carrying out acts of violence or other illegal acts in service of any extreme movement is, I think, relatively easy. It's not low risk, but anybody can, you know, make the point that they want to make by attacking somebody or trying to kill somebody. So right now, if you're going to bet on violent extremism as a movement, I think you'd bet, you know, that for over the course of, say, the next five years, that it will grow as opposed to decline. Now, one other thing I want to mention just to, to provide a somewhat happier answer is that trends tend to produce counter trends, right? Like right now, a lot rides on the degree of polarization that we have and people's inability to live with other people who have slightly different ideas about the world. That's normative. That's very ingrained in our current discourse. But discursive elements like that can shift either quickly or over time, especially with intentionality to shift that. I think that if you were to have a less polarized environment, then suddenly the extremist landscape looks very different. It's interesting that the comment about post-fact world. So uh, Click spends a lot of energy talking about data literacy, even when we're talking about <laughs> structured, quantified things, transactions, counts, there's a lot left to interpretation. Here we're talking about a domain of data where maybe two key KPIs are capacity and intent. And I'm curious about what your feeling is about the data literacy out there within the law enforcement and, and other policymaking organizations to in an unbiased way, interpret what is actually measurable. Courtney talked about social media and begin to really understand what that threat is, who it's coming from, and how likely it is to turn into something that could cause, whether it's physical damage or damage to the sort of soul of the country. Uh, what's there? How, how are we evolving towards those skills to and and the and the organizations that that leverage those skills to look at these at these groups through the lens of data? Well, there's clearly hunger to do so and willingness to do so. I think that data literacy, like I, I'm a big proponent of data literacy. I think it's a little bit of a different question in terms of how these organizations use data in some ways, in that 
a lot of data is used through AI that provides, you know, through artificial intelligence that provides some sort of predictive output. And one of the weird things about AI is that when you use it, um, to some extent, data literacy goes out the window, right? Most, most algorithms are complex enough that a policymaker relying on it is going to ha- be very challenged to understand exactly what the algorithm is doing. Now, that's not to say, obviously, that these are just black boxes and there's been a movement towards explainable AI and the like. So I think that, that overall, you know, the outlook is positive. And if you're talking about criminal cases where, you know, I think it's fair to say that, that there are probably cases where algorithms have been used to identify potential criminal suspects. And in all of those cases, you know, there are humans in the loop, right? Someone might be flagged through an algorithm. Nobody is arrested due to an algorithm. And, you know, that also is, is a positive thing. I think overall, more needs to be done both among policymakers and practitioners and especially societally in terms of data literacy. And I'd say that, that even aside from data literacy, when you look at questions like polarization, you know, basic critical thinking skills and media literacy are, are more important than they've ever been. And I think that they are critically lacking. You know, I, I even see you know, some experts in disinformation who will routinely fall for not necessarily disinformation, but at least misinformation. And that's interesting to me. Right. When people whose livelihood depends upon finding false facts and they themselves fall for fall for false facts, that's indicative of a very complex information landscape and probably indicative of our literacy about media not being where it should be. And and there, I think part of it as well is how how we all relate to social media. People make much more snap decisions about what is true. I think that is very unhealthy. Uh, Like if I have one critical thinking point to leave the audience with, it's if you see something, any any claim you see, don't believe it right away. Take some time to understand context. Take some time to understand the context that almost every news organization engages in clickbaity type titles, which means that the substance of any sort of article might be very different than what the headline suggests. And reporters themselves are prone to biases, prone to uh, trying to cultivate an audience. Everybody in the media landscape is trying to get clicks. And that really influences the quality of information that we all receive. With that brief assessment and overview of where we are now with thoughts of 9-11 clearly in mind, we're going to hit pause and come back for part two of this episode with David Gartenstein-Ross, looking in the next part on leadership solutions and what we need to be thinking about and doing and how even to project generationally for the coming years, project the right vision, the right approach to weaken the power of domestic extremism in our country and even in our own hearts and minds, largely through social media, but also what we can do in our own work and in our use of data. We look forward to that. Mm